so glad that you're able to join us on this fine Sunday morning. Um, getting close to the end of summer. Gasp. Uh, no, there's still plenty of summer left, guys. Uh, but thank you for being here. Welcome to Sedaris Church. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new or just joining us, again, welcome to you. Uh, we're so glad that you're here with us. If you brought your Bibles, open up to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm 7 is where we're going to begin working from today. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some slipped under the seat back, under the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, just take that one home with you. That'll be our gift to you this morning. Um, so Psalm chapter 7 where we're, is where we're working from today. Um, Joseph, I, think, I feel a little boomy. Maybe I'm boomy. I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Maybe you can help me out. Um, but we're going to just uh, read our psalm together. Then I'm going to pray. Then we'll dive into what this psalm has for us. All right. So Psalm 7. A Shagaeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Lord my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me, or they will tear me apart like a lion, ripping me apart with no one to rescue me. Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice on my hands, if I have done harm to one at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, may an enemy pursue and overtake me. May he trample me to the ground and leave my honor in the dust. Rise up, Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my adversaries. Awake from me. You have ordained a judgment. Let the assembly of peoples gather around you. Take your seat on high over it. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. The one who examines the thought and thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has strung his bow and made it ready. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He tips his arrows with fire. See, the wicked one is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord. Most high. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, today we, we come to a portion and a part of your scripture that can be intense for us. That could be a lot for us to hold, both in, in our minds and in our hearts. And so right now, we just, God, I pray that you would just send your, your spirit to be in an abundance of, of measure with us today, that you would give us eyes to see what your servant David is writing about almost 3,000 3, years ago. God, would you give us uh, ears to hear it? Would you give us hearts to see it? And would you show us the Messiah in the midst of all of it, God? Um, I just thank you for how we can come together and, and look at your word together. And God, we, right now, I just ask that you would make it clear for all of us. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. Well, today we continue on in our summer series in the Psalms, which is a bit of a tradition here at Sedaris. 
Um, we, every, each and every summer, we take a handful of psalms and, and we dive into them. And uh, the psalms are all about God. They're, they're prayers. They're, and they're all about God. Um, and they, all, they highlight so many different parts of who God is. And, and this year, we've selected psalms that emphasize different aspects of who God is. And so if you're here from the beginning, we've gone through God's God's goodness, his holiness, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his, his love. These are all things that the Psalms speak of. And what's great about the Psalms is they're actually not dry and stuffy theology. They're, they're actually anything but that. Because the, the reality of this God that the, Psalms, the psalmist is always speaking to is always dipped in the reality of the experience they're going through as well. And so really in the Psalms, what we find is the reality of God or his character dipping down and meeting the reality of our experiences in the real world or our real lives. You see, like the, the Psalms are really awesome because they sit in this really crucial space between heaven and earth. And, and that's really what prayer does. Prayer is really all about the uniting of heaven and earth. They come together in prayer. David, uh, Pastor Dave, he's not here this morning, but he always says, this is what I teach David, that in prayer, heaven and earth, they collide, and his son Grayson just loves it, you know? That's what prayer is, and, and this is what the Psalms are. But here's the deal with the Psalms. We read some Psalms, and they resonate with us. They just minister to our soul, and we're like, yes, that's exactly what I'm going through. That's the experience that I am in, and this Psalm is ministering to my heart in that way. But then there's some, like perhaps Psalm 7 for you, that we read and they hit us. and They don't really jive with us at all. This psalm is a bit of a wild ride. It's a bit of a wild ride. Like, like was God just described as someone with weapons, with swords, bows, and other weapons that comes after people? Is that the part of God that we're going to unpack today? What? How strange. So some of us uh, come to this psalm and we might be offended. Some encounter the psalm, and they're going to be filled with awe. Some of us are just confused by it, okay? So if, so whatever camp you're in, that's okay. That's okay. We're going to roll up our sleeves and look at what's going on here today. Um, but this psalm, if you're having a, a tough time with it, that's okay, because it's anticipating that you're going to have a tough time with it. Um, that, there's that weird word at the beginning here called the uh, shigeion. What the heck is a shigeion? We don't really know, all right? So we don't really know what it is, okay? But, but the Hebrew root of this word shigeion, it's not used of any other psalm. It's nowhere else in the Old Testament. The Hebrew root of this word shigeion, it means to wander. It means to wander. And this psalm is a bit of a wild ride. It's going to go up and down. It's going to go all over the place. And it doesn't just do it in content. It actually does it in style. So if you were a Hebrew poetry person, you would be like, is this a psalm of praise? Is this a, a psalm of, of trust? Is this a, a precatory psalm where David's asking God to curse his enemies? Yes, yes. yes. Is this a wisdom psalm where David's trying to explain this is just how life works? Yes. It's a bit of a wild ride. The best thing I can liken it to is the Bohemian Rhapsody. Anybody heard this song? Am I dating myself? Bohemian Rhapsody, you listen to that thing for the first time, and you're like, what did I just listen to? Was that metal? Was that a ballad? Was that an opera? It's just one wild ride all the way through. This is the Bohemian Rhapsody of the Psalter. That's where we are today in Psalm chapter 7. It's just, but at the core of this psalm, 
At the core of this psalm is a character trait of God that many and many of us struggle with called his justice. This is kind of like the rough part of God that, that you hope that when you one day eventually invite your friend and they're, they're able to come to church with you, this is what you hope. We're not talking about a church, right? The justice of God. But here's the thing that we have to keep in mind. Um, justice is a little bit like God's love and how it works. Like God just doesn't do justice. He is a just God. Similar to God's love, God just doesn't, isn't a, a loving person and, and, and do acts of love. He is a loving God. And, and, and in the same way, God doesn't just do justice. He is just. He is a judge. David envisions a court scene there in verse 7. where All the peoples of the earth are gathered, and God sits above everybody as judge. As judge. He makes decisions. He extends sentences. Every day. Now, two disclaimers here. Two disclaimers before we dive into this, okay? Um, now, depending on your upbringing, um, perhaps your ideology, you have a certain notion of the concept of justice as it should be played out in our social order, okay? And, and as David petitions for God's justice, namely to be vindicated from his adversary, he's reaching outside of his social order for a God who sees the situation perfectly and is powerful to act in the midst of it. He's pleading for God's justice to show up there. And and what we can say from human history, just take a, a simple glance back, is that systemic and injuring injustice has been a part of each and every human society up to the modern day. It's just part of life. And, And even as we abolish old injustices, it seems to only, that we only substitute new injustices in its, in, in its place. Injustice is just a reality that's going to be with us till the very end. Now, and I'm not minimizing injustice. I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything about the injustices that we see in the world. By no means. The, the fact that God is just would mean that he calls his people to stand for justice. That's huge thread and theme throughout the Old Testament scriptures and then fulfilled in Christ. I'm just saying that this psalm is going to model for us crying out to God in the midst of any injustice that we encounter, any injustice that we see, and we're always going to be in the midst of, of injustice. And so at points in your life, I hope that you can be able to pray this song in the midst of injustice. Um, the second disclaimer I'll say here is, is God um, as just and the Psalms and the scriptures that point to him as just have frequently been misused and abused throughout Christian history. That's something that we lament and we're, we're so sad that, that we look, we, you don't have to look very far into, into church history, even into church present day, and see the notion of God as just, the scriptures that point to him as just, misused in awful ways that hurt people that hurt people. And so if you ever come across someone or feel inclined yourself to petition for God's judgment and wrath on another human being, you've misinterpreted and misapplied the scriptures. They've misinterpreted and they've misapplied the scriptures. I really want to make this clear because I know that many of us get hung up on this. This is part of our stories that we're coming from, whether it be in our background or we have brushed up against groups that do this even nowadays. And I want you to be able to to listen 
Jesus called us to, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, not against those who, 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 who persecute us. And, and here's the more correct application. It comes from a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. Um, and he put it like this. At one point in his letter to the Ephesians, he's all about just outlining the spiritual armor that Christians are to put on as they, they step out into the world. But he's like, I really don't want to be misunderstood here and have them think that their warfare is against other people. So he says this. He said, before he kind of goes through his army, he says, hey guys, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the authorities, and the cosmic powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not against flesh and blood, Paul says. Our adversary spiritual. Okay, so, so with those disclaimers said, I just, I just want to help as many people listen to this psalm as possible today. With, with those disclaimers said, we're just going to do two things with the psalm today. We're going to go through, we're going to look at David and his situation and this adversary that he's got going on and, and how he reaches out and cries out to God. And then we're going to take some attempts and, and look at how this applies to us nowadays. Okay, just, just two things. We're going to look at what David's going through, what he cries out for from God, and then how that can apply to us today, all right? So what has David gotten himself into this time? What is David up to? Um, well, what's fascinating about this psalm is that it begins like many, many, many psalms. Perhaps if you're familiar with the psalms, you picked up on this. Verse 1 and 2, Lord my God, I seek refuge in you. Save me from all my pursuers and rescue me. Rescue me, God. David is crying out for God to rescue him. And what we see David lean on for this rescue is God's love, right? No, no, it's not. He's actually embracing God's justice to rescue him. Now, if you're anything like me, this is not your default emphasis when you're considering God's salvation. Now, I think most of our default is to... to link his salvation with his love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So that, right? right? So, so whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? Like God saves us because he's loving, right? Well, well, yes, of course, that's very, very true that God's salvation is motivated by his love. But to reduce his saving actions to just emanating from his love is to just kind of reduce and refuse to acknowledge the greater complex spiritual reality that's at play whenever God saves. There's a greater reality that's at play when God saves. <clears throat> it goes like this. If you were to think of just Christian salvation, when you consider the salvation of the Christian, it's that humans, uh, God doesn't just love us, but it's that we're oppressed by sin and in bondage, to sin, a bondage that was initiated and governed by dark spiritual forces of the world. And while God saving us from them is an act of his love, it's also an act of his justice on them. We, we see these two strands woven together all the time in the Old Testament. Actually, if you go to the Exodus account, it's kind of like the, the, the like prototype of God's saving actions here in the world. You can look at it and you can see, oh man, God really loved the Israelites and so he saved them out of Egypt. But also what's true? God's justice and wrath on the Egyptians. In fact, if you were really forced to pick which emphasis is greater as you read the Exodus account, you'd be forced to say, oh, his justice. There's 10 of these plagues. There's 10 of them. 
They're really intense. His justice. God really wants to judge Egypt for the slavery and genocide that they've committed on the Israelites. Do you know who really picks up and resonates with the components of God's justice in the Exodus account and all the accounts or throughout all the scriptures? Oppressed people. Historically, oppressed people lean into God's justice heavily. The beaten down, the overworked, the disadvantaged members of society, they see God's justice and they say, hallelujah. They can get all the way down to this last verse very quickly. I will thank the Lord for his righteousness. I will sing about the name of the Lord Most High. Oppressed people can get there quickly. It's more difficult for people who aren't the oppressed oppressed people. So his rescue is rooted in his love and his justice. So what is David actually going through here? Um, the title of this song says that, that this is a prayer David created and sang to Yahweh in response to the words of, of Cush, uh, a Benjamite. The only problem is we don't really know who that is either. Don't really know who Cush is. There's lots of scholarly debate about this, but, but uh, it doesn't really matter who this guy really is at the end of the day. But one that seems to incorporate most of the elements of the psalm would be to assume that David is writing this before he was king. You see, David had this awkward time of, for years, for years and years, before he was king of Israel, because the prophet Samuel came to his house one day and poured his oil on his head and said, hey, you're going to be the king of Israel. The only problem is there's currently a king of Israel on the throne. And what's worse is the current king of Israel, Saul, actually came to know David really well, and they had a relationship and as you can imagine, it can lead to a pretty complicated relationship. And, and Saul, he, what he made it even more complicated was Saul, he obviously wanted it to pass down in, to his son, but his son Jonathan was best friends with David. And his son Jonathan is like, yeah, clearly you should be king. I'm, I'm going to yield to the, this divine anointing that Samuel put on you from God. Makes it really, really difficult. And eventually Saul and his insecurity makes several attempts at David's life. And so David is forced to flee. He was Saul's military commander. Then he's forced to flee. And he's on the run for four years. He's on the run for four years. Despite his loyalty, despite all this that he has been alongside Saul and says, hey man, I will never overthrow you. I'm I'm, I'm here as long as you're king. There are times when David could have taken Saul's life when he was on the run. but He decided not to. Loyal till the end. That's David. Now, Now Saul was a Benjamite. Uh, himself, a a Hebrew man that was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so this is the tribe that actually remained loyal to Saul the entire time he was on the throne, as long as he was around. And and one set of servants that each king had in these times was a set of warriors. These were people that were particularly trained in hand-to-hand combat. And what they would do is, is they would go around the kingdom and kind of be the king's muscle where the king needed muscle. Um, if you read through, uh, I think it's in Kings, David himself had 30 of these guys, just 30 muscle guys that would go around and just like enforce the king's decree wherever the king needed muscle. And it's thought that Cush was one of Saul's muscle guys. Cush is one of these warriors that Saul had. And, and we don't know what Cush actually said, but if we look at verse 3 and 4, it seems that David is being accused of being disloyal. The center of this accusation is that he's done harm to one at peace with him or betrayed a friend. He's betrayed Saul and has not become, is not loyal to him. So a smear campaign has been created against David, which is all part of a plan to discredit him and cause him to lose support from who? 
his current friends. Hey, this guy's eventually going to turn on you. So that they would turn him over so that he could be killed. And in light of this accusation, David petitions for God's justice to be done. He envisions this courtroom scene of sorts where God gathers the assemblies of people all around him and takes his throne to judge the case. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever been called to act as judge between people, um, but this happens to me all the time, uh, Christy and I all the time, at our home when fights break out, okay? You just hear it happening, and it's elevating, and it's elevating, and sometimes they can solve it on their own. This is my two oldest daughters, by the way. Sometimes they can't. And, and sometimes you've got to get in there, step in, and intervene. And when you step in to intervene, this is what immediately happens. Both of them start shouting at you, about what the other person has done. They want you to be the judge. They want you to, to issue a sentence and they want you to, to, to push forth justice into their situation. They're both screaming about the injustice that the other person has done. Lucy's done this. Penny did that. And it just gets worse and worse until I separate them. I don't know. I think like judges have a gavel. I need to find a gavel of sorts. There's just something about like, a loud noise that just breaks the consciousness. People, oh, we should be quiet. You know, I, I need to find one. But each of them is asking me to judge the other. But that's not what David's doing here. That's not what he's doing at all. He's saying, God, judge me. God, judge me. Oh. He says, if I did this, judge me, God. And more than just a decision, he wants the full sentence. He's saying, if I did this, God, have my enemy chase me. Have him capture me, have him subjugate me, and then have him humiliate me if I did this, God. Vindicate me according to my righteousness and my integrity in this situation. David's done nothing wrong, so he's pleading God's justice. And then he says something most peculiar as he asks for God to judge. He asks for this strange verdict and this very unique sentence in verse 9. He says, let the evil of the wicked come to an end but establish the righteous. And what gives David the confidence that God can do this? What's the second half of the verse? He says, the one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. God is not a human judge who has to look at the pieces of evidence that are submitted to him. I can just look at the piece of paper that Lucy crumpled up and brought to me and said, hey, Penny did this. But God is not a human judge like that. He can see inside the heart, inside the mind. The basis for God's judgment comes from inside of people, our thoughts and our emotions. He looks below the surface. He looks beyond the physical, tangible stuff into people's hearts and minds. Now, human judges, they try to do this. They, they, they try. One of the goals of the courtroom is, is to determine what? Motive. What's going on behind what we can see? What's your motive? But even the most trustworthy, most intelligent, best-intentioned judges get it wrong sometimes. They get it because they can't see inside, but not God. He's no human judge. He perceives hearts and minds and judges on that basis, which is why his judgments are always right. Now, now this might make and should make some of us squirm, all of us squirm. When we think of God peering into our hearts and our minds, we can really feel like we're on the hot seat, right? Like, oh man, he sees it all. He sees just my thoughts, not just what I do. But this is what's fascinating about David's prayer to the Lord in verse 9. 
He's not petitioning for God to kill the wicked. He's saying, God, let their evil come to an end. Let it come to an end. And one of those ways is at the, at the beginning of verse 12, repentance. Repentance. Repentance is a way out. It's an honest acknowledgement of wrong and a solemn vow to stop it. One that, that this thought-seeing, heart-perceiving God can determine is actually authentic and genuine or not. Do you know what the most repeated verses in the Bible are? It comes from Exodus chapter 34. Um, and it, it, they're the, the statement that God says to Moses Moses says, God, can I see your glory? And God tucks Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he says, uh, you can't really see me, so as I, I pass by, I'll put my hand over you, and you can see my back as I walk away. And he says these words. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Maintaining the faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving inequity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. These verses are repeated the most in the Bible. Twenty some odd times, these verses are repeated throughout the Old Testament, even into the New. They're repeated over and over and over again. What are they saying? God is slow to anger, but just. He's slow to anger, but just. This is the foundational understanding of who God is in the scriptures. David knew this. David knew this. Slow to anger, but just. So I can petition his justice. You know who else knew this? Jonah. Which is why he originally refused to go to Nineveh to proclaim what? the coming destruction and wrath of God because he knew if they repented, God would spare them. And they did repent and God did spare them. And he was pissed. So I hate the Ninevites. All this is to say that repentance is the preface to these verses about God readying these weapons. It's the crucial and most important conditional statement before all of this. David knows the idea of God executing his justice is going to rub his readers the wrong way. So he reminds us there's a way out for everybody. He's slow to anger. A heart that has repented, not a life that's lived perfect, but a heart that's repented, that's the way out. Can't work in a human court, though, because human, human judges can't see hearts. Now, let's talk about these weapons. Um, these verses are very hard for us to read. And even some translations change the translations to be a little bit different to make them not God's weapons. But it says like, they say like, if he does not relent, talking about if David's pursuer does not relent, he will eventually get his weapons in order in order to kill David. It's, it's a very minority view, but it really highlights the tension that these passages are hard to stomach and we want to get out from under them. People are looking for ways out. But David has figuratively created God Establishing his justice, which is just a fancy way of saying implementing his wrath with weapons. Figurative language is metaphorical language. The way out isn't to say that God isn't like this. The way out is actually to do what David's done here. The way out is to see what it actually looks like when God implements it. And that's in the next verses. Verse 14, see the wicked one is pregnant with evil 
He conceives trouble and gives birth to deceit. He dug a pit and hollowed it out, but fell into the hole he had made. His trouble comes back on his own head. His own violence comes down on top of his head. It's God taking the intended evil and turning it back upon those who conceived of it. Now let me ask you something. Are you comfortable with this version of God's wrath? Of course you are. All of us are very, very comfortable with this. The world sees it all the time. We see it, it's part of our human experience. People who conceive evil, eventually they fall into it themselves and it turns back around on them. It happens so often that even people who aren't Christians have a term for it as they observe it. Karma. They have the wrong author and the wrong person that's actually implementing it, but they call it karma. It's very, very interesting. But David says that this is the way that God works his justice in the world. This is the way that God implements his justice. Hell, being the most ultimate form of God's justice, is just this. It's God giving people the distance they want from him. Eventually that distance, that that rebellion, that that stiff arm comes back on them. C.S. Lewis always famously talked about hell as as the cage where um, there's a a lock, it's it's locked from the inside. God's locked the other, unlocked the other side. But it's it's locked, the person on the inside has locked it, doesn't want to come out. Their trouble is coming back on their own head. So, so that's David, that's his prayer, that's his request for, for justice. And so now we ask, how can this psalm help us in our current situations? Like, how are we actually helped by this? Many of us would be hard-pressed, perhaps, to find a, a straight application to an adversary like Cush, right? Well, not so fast. There's a wrinkle that, here that goes like this. Because God is slow to anger and his desire is that all will come to know him. He's very loving. He doesn't always choose to execute his justice in this life. And that can be really hard for those of us who have been severely, perhaps even violently wronged. It can be a really hard pill to swallow. Psalm 7 is for you to cry out to God, to cry out to him to vindicate you and preserve his justice. That's what David is doing here. He had to cry out to God for four years. Four years, yeah, he was on the run, living in caves, probably not eating food that was all that great. Anybody seen Alone? Survival series? Maybe that's David for a bit. He was on the run from an oppressor for a long time. You don't need to keep quiet. You can cry out to God. And second, um, second, God has ordained and instituted human government, and uses them to limit violence in the world, okay? So don't feel like because you're a Christian, you can't go to proper authorities to report other Christian injustice, especially if laws are being broken. I mean, God has graciously given us the modern world access to judicial systems that humans had never had access to before. It's not perfect justice, but it's justice none Unless you don't have to shut up and take it. That, that, that's what I want to hear, want you to hear me say. Psalm 7 is all about lifting up our voice and crying out for justice. And it is a very, very good and even right thing to do in many, many, many situations. Um, the other person-to-person application, I'll call them, um, would be that this, um, 
This psalm should be our first step when we feel we are accused wrongly of anything, whether it be persecution or for something at work or even a friendship. We pray similar to David, God, you judge me. God, you judge me. What does this do? It reminds us that God's judgment is really only the thing that matters in this world, not the judgments of other people, not the judgments of our bosses, although you should, I mean, if it comes down to like, you're not doing a good job, you should trust their judgment. His judgment is the only thing that matters. He's the only one that sees hearts, that sees minds, and so you invite him to help you see your heart and mind, though. And on one level, this can lower your anxiety with regards to your situation by, by putting the accusation into kind of perspective. But there's a second benefit to doing this. God has a better perspective on our hearts and our minds than even we do. And so when we bring accusations against us to God and ask for his judgment, we begin a conversation with him about our heart and our mind and our inward being. Maybe at the beginning of that prayer, we think we're innocent. But by the end of it, we're like, oh, shoot. I'm guilty. I am. This is true of me. This is true of me. This is beautiful. Now you have an opportunity to repent. Not just to God, but apologize to your accuser. And do you know what's the most rare thing in the world? A genuine apology. Displayed repentance. And and, and with that then comes an incredible gospel witness. As far as living out the gospel in the world, I'm convinced that public repentance and apology is the most effective evangelistic witness outside of preaching. I mean, this is actually when your life begins to preach the gospel, when you apologize. It's so rare. It's so rare. Maybe as you bring this thing to God and ask him to judge you, he says, nah, you need to work on this. What a great opportunity. Now, let's go cosmic in scope because I don't want to leave this psalm just knowing that we can ask God for help, okay? I think you, you know that. A lot of us know that. Um, but I don't want to just leave that, this psalm, just saying, okay, I guess I'll just ask God for help. Um, there's a bigger and more cosmic thing at work in this psalm um, that stems primarily in the fact that there's a, a bigger and more cosmic accuser in the person of Satan. Did you know that one of Satan's titles in the scriptures is accuser of Christians? In Revelation chapter 12, the the Apostle John says, the ancient serpent, the devil, is the accuser of our Christian brothers and sisters. And he says that Satan accuses them before God, how often? Day and night. Continually. All the time. All the time. Such an interesting spiritual scene, isn't it? Satan before God. Accusing us. Accusing us. Why does Satan do this? Well, do you know who knows better than any that God is just? It's Satan. He rebelled against God. He broke the heavenly order. And do you know what happened? God's justice happened. He was expelled and tossed out of it. Jesus said he came out so fast it was like lightning falling to earth. He knows God's justice. He knows that. And his first order of business was to ruin the rest of God's creation by doing what? tempting Adam and Eve to break the earthly order. Why? So humans might be on the opposite end of God's justice too. That's what he's all about. 
You see, Satan figured out how the game worked firsthand, and his revenge on God was to put God's image in the created order, that's us, at odds with his justice so that he would have to eliminate them, to exterminate his own image in creation. That's Satan's plan. And so Satan tempted Adam and Eve, who gave in, and all of us are now marred as a result. Rebellion to God, you could say, is written in our spiritual DNA, and there's no getting around it. And because it's written into our spiritual DNA, it, it, it presents itself in a million different ways over the course of our lives. And, and, and do you know what Satan does with that guilt? He stands before God and accuses us. They are rebellious. They have cast off your rule. As just king, you must eliminate them continually, day and night. That's what John saw in his vision. So we have a problem. Um, Satan functions as a prosecuting lawyer, accusing us before the throne of God, the judge. We're the defendants, and the case is a lock for him. He's got this thing locked up. There's no way he can lose this case. He's got us dead to rights. How are we actually to plead our case before God? Is there a solution? Well, look back in verse 9. Verse 9 is very, very interesting. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. Now, when you read this in English, you, you naturally assume the wicked are plural, right? And, and you would be correct. In the Hebrew, the, you could translate it, the wicked ones. But you would also assume that, that the righteous would be plural too, and that David is making a generalized statement about how God should judge the evil ways of the wicked ones and establish the righteous ones in the world. But the only problem is that the righteous here is singular in the Hebrew. You, you would actually have to translate it righteous one. It's not plural. Who is this righteous one that David has in mind? Scholars debate whether David's actually referring to himself here. Given the second half of the verse, the one who examines the thoughts and emotions is a righteous God. Many say that he's just honestly crying out to God. God, establish the most righteous person on the throne that you can. Someone like you. Someone like you, God. Wow. Um, 250 years later, after David's rule, after the kingdom splits up and we have kings who ruled righteously over the northern and southern kingdoms, kings who ruled unrighteously over these kingdoms. The prophet Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And here's the key, to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The gospel of Matthew. Matthew lets, us, lets his reader know. Isaiah, he's talking about Christ. And this is pointing to Jesus Christ. And as we read of this Christ in the gospel accounts, who is this perfect and perceptive figure? It's him. He seems to have the ability to look into people's minds, to look into people's thoughts. You even see some of these editorial remarks by the gospel writers. And Jesus, knowing the thoughts in their mind, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, did this, did this, said this. 
He gets thrust into really tough positions, asked really tough questions with a very diverse amount of parties around that all want to be, uh, have the right answer spoken. He's forced to, forced to make correct statements and, and judgments. And he does it perfectly. And the gospel writers say the onlookers were just amazed at him, at how he navigated these judgment calls and started reaching for justice. And then it gets to a point where his opponents, like Saul towards David, want to take his life. The Jewish leaders of of his time falsely accuse him before Roman authorities to get him executed so that he can be ripped apart like a lion, quite literally. And if you're one of his disciples who knew Psalm 7, you would think, surely if God delivered David, he's going to deliver Jesus. Surely. This guy Jesus is a way better guy than this guy David is that that we read about. Way better. Surely God will see his adversaries heaping these false testimony upon him and deliver him. Surely Jesus will cry out. But he doesn't. He's silent. A little bit later in Isaiah, Isaiah says this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus didn't pray Psalm 7. He refused. Why? Because it was his plan to be made guilty. This is also from Isaiah 53. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Our punishment was on him. His plan was to function as a sacrifice, which means that his plan was to take on the sin of the world, of all who would repent and believe in him upon his shoulders and assume that guilt before God for them. Guilt, that's courtroom language. He assumed the guilt of sin before the righteous God judge and experienced his justice. He experienced God's arrows through him. He experienced the sword in his side. He experienced God's justice and wrath so that we wouldn't have to. He refused to pray Psalm 7 so that we could in light of Satan's accusations against us. You have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. This is your prayer before God. If you've you've been justified by Jesus Christ, this is your defense before Satan. When, When he says, there's no way. When Satan says to you, there's no way God will accept you what, for, after what you've done. But it doesn't matter if it was last night, yesterday, last week, last month, last year, last decade. It doesn't matter. You've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb and every accusation from Satan pointing at your sin, which he does over and over again. Am I right? He does over and over again. You're free from. You've been cleaned because of the scandal of the cross. We actually, in those moments, can look to God and plead our case. What does that case look like? Jesus Christ. That's all you have to say. Jesus Christ. Christians live in a perpetual state of a clean slate. Our guilt before the throne has been taken care of. Do you feel like the scandal of all this, that that Satan's accusations towards all the wrong things that you've done, even the wrong thing that you may have done this morning, you can be free from it. 
say, nope, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This is how you, that's how you plead your case before God. Now, now, functionally, many Christians know they're free from guilt, um, but we still carry the shame from the accuser, right? Shame is, is the thought that there's something wrong with you. So, so it's different from guilt. Guilt would be more of like you did something wrong, and shame is kind of the imputation of that wrong to your very identity. So, so you could say, um, I stole something, that's guilt. But then you could also say, I'll never be anything more than just a thief. That's shame. See how you've identified with a thief instead of just doing something wrong? Now it's part of who you are. It's part of your identity. This is how the accuser sidelines Christians all the time. I see it all the time. So many Christians believe the shameful accusations that Satan makes against them. And that when they do, they're sidelined from thinking they have the ability to do anything for God, thinking they have the ability to serve, thinking they have the ability to talk to their friends about Jesus, thinking they have the ability just to love because Satan has told them something else about their identity. We, we hold it in shame. But that's to buy into the lies of the accuser, <laughs> that you're not good enough. So when you feel that, you plead your case before God, Jesus Christ. He has made you good enough. You see, God gave you the cross, then he made you a new creation. Then he gave you the Holy Spirit along with a new name and a new status. You are a child of the Most High God. That's who we are in Christ. Washed, clean, endowed with his, spirits to, his spirit to do good works in the world. His mercies are new each and every day. He did all this so that you could plead your case and win. So brothers and sisters, we need to stop letting the enemy Accuse us and bring us down in shame. Pray this psalm to God when you feel the accuser so that you might be thrust into the gospel reality of a Christ who refused to pray it so that you could. A Christ who has washed you clean. Plead God's justice on your cosmic enemy that his trouble would fall back on his own head. God's justice is the basis for all spiritual warfare. Spirit, that, that's all spiritual warfare is. Sometimes we can... Think of spiritual warfare as, as a concept. Like, oh, that's crazy and that's intense. All it is is pleading, like David, for God's justice on our adversary now. That's what spiritual warfare is. In what name? The name of the just judge, Jesus Christ. David is saying, God, judge my adversary right now. We do the same. God, in the name of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver me from, from the accuser and his schemes in my life. If you sense dark spiritual powers at play in your life, perhaps you have a history of occult practices, perhaps your parents dabbled in it while, while you were a kid. This, is a, this could be a real thing for you. Dark spiritual forces are, are real beings with real power, but no match for the name of Jesus Christ. No match, because he alone is the king and judge of the universe. And so you invite the judge to show up and sentence your accuser just like David did. Ask him for us. God's justice works for us now, not against us. And so I want to point to the armor of God because the armor of God, like we talked about earlier, Paul, he talks about this armor of God that Christians are to put on as they really wake up in the morning and step out into their day. And he goes through a list and as you read it, it gets kind of more and more intense as you read through it. And at the crescendo of it, he says, and 
pick up the sword of the Spirit. And making sure you don't misunderstand what that is, he says, which is the word of God? Sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And the author of Hebrews brings all of these concepts together. Armor, word of God, judgment, righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 4, puts it beautifully like this. For the word of God is living and effective, because it's the Spirit, and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Sound familiar? No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Let's pray.